Hello and welcome. These are some sermons given by Monsignor Rosito from the years 1995 to the year 2016. Enjoy. Today is the third Sunday after Easter and the epistle is taken from the first letter of St. Peter. Beloved, I exhort you as strangers and pilgrims to abstain from carnal desires which war against the soul. Behave yourselves honorably among the pagans, that whereas they slander you as evildoers, they may, through observing you by reason of your good works, glorify God in the day of visitation. Be subject, therefore, to every human creature for God's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as sent through him, for vengeance on evildoers and for the praise of the good. For such is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Live as free men, yet not using your freedom as a cloak for malice, but as servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters in all fear, not only to the good and moderate, but also to the severe. This is indeed a grace in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the Holy Gospel is taken from the Gospel according to St. John. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. At that time, Jesus said to his disciples, A little while, and you shall see me no longer. And again a little while, and you shall see me, because I go to the Father. Some of his disciples therefore said to one another, What is this he says to us? A little while, and you shall not see me. And again, a little while, and you shall see me. And I go to the Father. They kept saying, therefore, What is this little while of which he speaks? We do not know what he is saying. But Jesus knew that they wished to ask him, and he said to them, You inquire about this among yourselves, because I said, A little while, and you shall not see me. And again, a little while, and you shall see me. Amen, amen, I say to you that you shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and you shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman about to give birth has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has brought forth a child, she no longer remembers the anguish for her joy that a man is born into the world. And you th therefore have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no one shall take from you. So far the words of this day's Holy Gospel. Beloved, I exhort you as strangers and pilgrims to abstain from carnal desires which war against the soul. These are words taken from the epistle of today's Holy Mass in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. My dear friends in Christ, if you were God and saw how sinful mankind has become, how would you try to bring men back to sanity? We have probed and discovered that there is an inversion process as a person deviates from God, away from God, into an opposition that turns him inside out where his values are all backwards. 
And we realize that we are born into this condition of fallen nature. It's not only upside down, but it's inside out as well. And God has somehow to reach into that inversion and pull us out of it, backside up and straightened out. And it's a painful process. We are comfortable the way we are. You know, the law of inertia, body at rest tends to stay at rest. A body in motion tends to stay in motion. So we tend to be what we were. And you might say that's the definition of being conservative. We don't like to make changes. We stay as we were. And uh, sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad. It brings us to the principle that everything contains the potential for good and for evil. So if we see things evil today in the world, and indeed throughout the world they are, inversions to, you might say, the ultimates. Not quite yet to the ultimate extreme, but on its way rapidly to total destruction. What remedy would you then use to save man from himself, from his worst self? Would you punish him? Now consider parents with children who are wayward, who are stubborn, who are strong-minded and disobedient. You know, the punishment sometimes just doesn't work. Uh, mercy, would you try mercy? Long-suffering, patience, forgiveness. Sometimes that doesn't work. Threats, I'll take away your privileges. Sometimes that doesn't work. Destruction, that's the last means, but you sort of lose in the victory. <coughs> what did God do? He tried all of this. He tried punishment, the flood, the deluge, mercy, long-suffering, threats, destruction. Remember when Moses went up the mountain on the journey from Egypt to the Promised Land, Mount Sinai, God gave him the Ten Commandments. And while Moses was up on the mountain, what did the people down in the valley do? They gathered the gold, made a calf, made this their God, they worshipped this, then they fornicated and sinned. And when Moses came down, what did he find? A people that had totally lost their way, their wits. Not all. And he said, choose which way you're going to go, the God that is on Mount Sinai or the God that you've created that you worship to do as you please, that gives you what you want. And when they chose, then they were destroyed who chose against the living God. And the Israelites that remained continued on their journey to the promised land through the hardships, through the difficulties that remained. How did God treat these people? He gave them a choice, and then they took the consequences. Remember that Jesus, God made man, wept over Jerusalem. God shed tears over the coming destruction of Jerusalem, the center of religion for the Jewish people, where in the temple, the only sacrifices were offered in the whole land. And that would be destroyed. 
because they did not know what was in their midst for their peace. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if thou hadst known the things that are in thee for thy peace, that thou wouldest not, like a stubborn child, what would God do? He wept. And they were destroyed. They lost their nation. They were scattered. To this day, they're still suffering because they had not known what is in them for their peace. And so it is with the whole world. They're only a showpiece of mankind as to what can happen to those who will rebel against the plan, the will of God. Whether in ignorance, or in willfulness, these two powers, intelligence, free will, ignorance, not to know. How often we suffer because of our ignorance. God says, my people suffers because of ignorance. They don't know. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. There is a mindlessness that takes place with a deviation from God who is the light who is the illumination of our understanding of our way I am the way the truth and the life no one can come to the Father except through me so there has to be a light but if we depart from the light we go into darkness and ignorance we're born into already we're born ignorant and we must come to the light and Christ said I am the light that has come into the world they preferred darkness to the light. They liked it dark. The body at rest tends to stay at rest. And it takes effort to come out of the darkness into the light. It takes effort. And that is salvation, our part in a contribution to redemption, which requires our cooperation to learn. How many people want to learn? It's easier to remain ignorant. And let somebody else do the thinking that you will follow. You make your choices and you become a slave to those who you choose as a leader in your life, your intelligence, your intellectual life, or in your moral life, to sin or not to sin. Well, I know I shouldn't do this, but I'll do it anyhow. I know I shouldn't drink, but I'll drink anyhow. I know I shouldn't commit sins of impurity, but I'll commit sins of impurity anyhow to make our choices. And God weeps. What would you do if you were God? Today, the Blessed Mother is weeping. How many statues and pictures throughout the world do we find this phenomena of the Blessed Virgin in a strange way, her stature pictures weeping? How? It is. Because of the impending disaster that is going to overtake us. The seers talk about the coming days of darkness. Scriptures told us men fainting for fear of the things that are coming upon this world. And do we sober up? Do we change? What could God do? After the punishment, after the mercy, after the threats, what's left? Destruction. The things that are in, thy, in thee for thy peace, but thou wouldest not. And now the days are coming when an army will surround you. And they will dash you to the ground. And there will not be a stone left upon a stone. Utter destruction. 
And against all of this must come our knowledge and our choices. Difficult though those choices may be, we live in the light of truth, and the truth guides our choices. Not what we prefer, not what's comfortable, but what is our duty and obligation that the truth dictates to us, no matter what else takes place. And it is in this that we find the balance that otherwise, if lost, would destroy us. The things that are in thee for thy peace, for thy balance, for the orderliness that God has designed and instructed you to follow so that you can find this peace and orderliness in life, in your own life and in society. But thou wouldest not. Original sin has brought disorder, ignorance, weakness, death. But Christ has come as a light into the world with grace to strengthen us, to guide us in keeping this balance in order so that peace may reign within our hearts, within our minds, within our lives, and in the world as a consequence. But it must be directed by God. And if we break the commandments, we become gods ourselves. I will not serve except myself. And so here is the cause then of the misery of the world. Wars don't come because you don't have guns. Uh, Peace doesn't come because you don't have guns. Peace comes because there's orderliness inside of people. And that orderliness must be dictated by God. And in rebellion against God, we rebel against ourselves. Our very nature, the very balance that would give us peace if we would in caring for what God has given us to be lords and master over, under God, ourselves, and the dominion over nature. So we come to the fifth commandment, which is second in importance. So it's hard to assess the fourth commandment of its value because authority must be under God to be valid and operable. And Outside of that, there is no salvation. Man is not capable of ordering his own life. He thinks he is, but he's not able in the long run to maintain that balance. Take, for example, the human body. The diseases, the destruction of its parts. How many ways the human body can be attacked? There's the nervous system. How many diseases of the nerves? There are the senses. How many things can go wrong with the eye? Uh, the, the blood system, leukemia, um, arteriosclerosis, all these things. Uh, the very marrow of the bones. There's diseases there. Diseases of the skin. How many ways the body can go awry, and yet how few there are that attack us at one time. Millions of ways, and yet one or the other shuts us down. A big man is knocked down by viruses, tiny, tiny little uh, operations within his body that render him sick. And if these disturbances that create this imbalance in our physical organism, how about the mind? When we don't feel the pain, but we see the results when it goes astray. In fact, it becomes blind. Everybody thinks he's right or she's right. 
Everybody does that. They justify themselves. As they deviate, they continue to justify themselves, thinking that they're correct. And, of course, you, everyone thinking themselves to be correct is going to come into conflict with everybody else. Unless we're all correct under God, who alone is the prime source of orderliness and strength and light and operation. So when we come to the fifth commandment, the next in importance, uh, we not only must not unjustly take the life of an innocent person, we've considered that already, we have a duty to keep balance within our own lives, within our own bodies, caring for our life and health. Now, this is rather an academic subject. You might say it deals with medical, uh, physical uh, concerns. But you know, all of life is religious. Our bodies belong to God. We can't say that uh, we only pray and that's all we have to do, but our whole operation is taking care of our lives, our health. And any imbalance there would be wrong, out of order, to go to excess. Eating is necessary. But to eat too much is wrong. And to eat the wrong things is going to be unhealthful and perhaps even destructive of life. A little poison, even though it tastes sweet, can destroy the physical life of the body. Diabetic, one who has asthma or allergies of one kind or another, how many ways we have to adjust our lives according to the limitations to bring about that balance. We compensate. So we don't eat certain things. We eat other things maybe we don't like but are good for us because of the necessity of our body to keep that balance. And when the body is in balance, it's healthy. And when the mind is in balance, it too is healthy. But you don't have the consequences so evident as in the body when it goes astray, it becomes ill and it causes pain and things are out of order, easily seen, felt, experienced. But when the mind goes out of order, it's so hard to assess and to bring it back into shape. And we go to others for counseling or for diagnosis so that we can then make better choices. And we go to our parents, we go to those who are more expert in matters um, that we're not able to see because of ignorance and therefore using their knowledge can guide ourselves better in caring for our health and for our life in general. So we must preserve this as an obligation uh, for keeping our health. And it comes under the fifth commandment. So it's not free to pick and choose. I'm going to drink. I'm going to smoke. I'm going to take drugs. Uh, I'm going to do as I please. It's my own body. No, it is given to you to use, but it's God's property. He's going to uh, take an accounting of how you used your body as you went through the years of life. So we don't want excesses, and we want to have the propriety of the right things. It means then, therefore, we let the truth guide us, not our preferences of what we please, but what is truly beneficial for us. So man has no right to encroach upon God's dominion over life. We are instruments through which God brings life into being, but we do not create life. You cannot create a plant. You cannot produce a flower. You take a seed and you plant it and you nourish it and the seed produces the life. God has given the power to the seed. He's given the power to human beings. He's given the power 
For all things that generate life, because he is the author of life, and only he has dominion over what is his, which is over life itself. We have no right to take that privilege away from God, that right away from God. So man has no right to encroach upon God's dominion over life. Man created no human being. And imagine in the science fiction whereby Frankenstein is created. But what a monster man puts together. He kludges from parts and puts together this thing that is a terror. And in cloning, he will produce likewise aberrations that God never intended. And when he puts together parts and pieces of animals and human beings, what will we have? We will have disorder beyond our reckoning. And this is man taking God's place. And what does man produce? Man may not kill any human being, not even his own self. You have no right to take your own life. Our body is not our own. It's lent to us. Somebody gives you some precious thing to use but retains dominion over it, you take care of that thing that you have been given, whether it's a car, a piano, something of value. Uh, it's to be polished and kept in good order and returned, grateful for the use that was given in the meantime. And we give it back again to God as he sees necessary or fit when he wants. It belongs to God, therefore, this that we use and consider our very own erroneously. How many people use this as an abortion argument? A woman has a right over her own body. False. Out of order. Aberration. They're sincere. They think they're right. And look, life is lost. Damage is done. We are bound to take care of our bodies and to do with them not what we wish, but what God wills. So when you sit down to dinner, you're doing something religious. You're doing what God wants you to do in the way that he has designed for you with reason, guided by faith, and the proper balance that keeps things intact. And there's health, there's strength, there's happiness. And that's what God designed for us. But it demands that we take responsibility in keeping this balance. God created our body as an abode for our immortal soul. So all the more so than for our souls, which belong to God. Do you not know that you are temples of the Holy Ghost and that you are not your own? You are temples of God. At least this is what he gives you an opportunity to be by baptism, and by being a Catholic, a true Catholic. Not a sham, not an imitation, not an attempt, but a reality to live the life of Christ who lived his father's life, not my will but thine be done, was his watchword. Even to the crisis of his own passion and death, not my will but thine be done. And so when we sit down at table, not my will but thine be done, becomes a religious act, this beautiful opportunity to enjoy food with moderation, with propriety, and as an act of worship of God. And we say our uh, prayers before and after meals to remind us that this is an act of religion. This is coming to church. 
We don't think of it in those terms, but this is the reality, and it should be kept in perspective. Very often, the condition of the body affects that of the soul. Now, the rule is the lower serves the higher, but the higher rests on the lower. Grace builds on nature. So we have to have nature before we can have grace. You have to be before you can be uh, redeemed. And even though we're born in original sin, we come out of it. And it is the contributing factor from the lower to the higher that has to be kept in balance that grace then will be guided by the substructure. How we treat the body will be how the mind operates. And if we're drunk, the mind cannot operate properly. You lose your sense of reason. And that's the disaster of drunkenness, not to be in control, to enjoy and lose control and cause destruction or damage of one kind or another. You can't think straight. You can't act correctly. The body is disturbed because of the toxic condition that you put it in by excessive alcohol. And then how can your spiritual life operate if your mind is not operating correctly? So you see the spiritual depends upon the mental, which depends upon the physical. And therefore it's important to consider your own bodies as the basis upon which your whole spiritual life is structured up. We don't make the body first, but it is the basis upon which we rise to the higher things in life. If the body is unhealthy, the soul suffers. There's a wise Roman proverb, a healthy mind in a healthy body. It goes back to the Greeks, actually, to have a good, strong body and a good, healthy mind. That was the ideal. But you can't have a healthy mind if your body is not healthy. However, we are not obliged to employ unusual means involving great expense or extraordinary suffering. Again, reason guided by faith. First things first. If you have a very little amount of money, you're going to use that money for the more important things, to save for food. You must eat to live. And then to have the shelter and the other things extensively until you come to the more refined things, excesses that perhaps you can enjoy as um, pleasures or refinements of life. But when you're down to basics, you stay with the more important things. And we're not bound to use extraordinary means to care for the body if it becomes sick and um, you have to employ um, life-supporting systems. You may, if you wish, you can afford it, but you're not bound to. You must use ordinary care for the sake of the body, ordinary care. What's normal, what's reasonable, what's within your province? And if you're going to die, sooner or later we're all going to die, then we resign ourselves to the will of God. That's a great act of submission. Not my will, but thine be done. But if we can, with reason, guided by faith, preserve the body, then we use those means accordingly, but not beyond a certain point of obligation. So we can't abuse the body. We can't expose it to unnecessary dangers. Therefore, reason guided by faith sort of guides us in this operation of thou shalt not kill thyself by abusing your health. We must exercise prudence in, re in preserving our health and that of those under our care. Prudence, which means intelligence, 
and proper judgment. We imply cleanliness, temperance, regularity, industry, and the use of remedies during sickness. Driving a car at excessive speed, crossing the tracks when a train is approaching, playing with loaded firearms, jumping into or out of a car while it is in motion, motorcycles, for example, hanging on the running board of a car are imprudent actions. It's danger. And children don't understand, and therefore parents have to scold them and restrain them and do things that punish them if they take these foolhardy uh, uh, chances. We know that. They don't understand until they grow up. We have an, uh, the obligation to do nothing which tends to injure or destroy health of life. It injures health to indulge to excess in drinking, smoking, dancing at all hours. You need your rest. It's to recreate. That's what we mean by recreation. Not to burn the candle at both ends and destroy yourselves on the vacation, but to build it up again. And we do that when we go to sleep at night to get ready for the next day so we don't stay up extra long hours and wake up groggy and unprepared for the following day. I mean, this is reason guided by faith, which means that you follow it, therefore. Not just say, well, I know I should, but. Uh, vanity in dress, propriety, sensibility. Some have more expensive tastes and they can afford it. But usually there's a simplicity even in the most elegant. And vanity sometimes unbalances our thinking and therefore our show that we really are out of order in the dresses or, or suits or clothing that we display. So keep a balance and propriety and everything falls in place. It even helps your spiritual life. Some women and girls are gravely responsible for not eating proper food out of a desire to keep thin and thus be more pleasing in the eyes of others, especially men, to the injury of their health. An exorea is a strange kind of a condition that people will not eat and take means not to be nourished. It's out of balance in thinking. Some men and boys form the vice of drunkenness. It's macho. Yeah, have another. Taking so much of intoxicants as to lose their reason. College. You know, they're just children growing up in men's bodies. They haven't learned to control their appetites or their reason. And they do foolish things. They think it's proper or acceptable. Well, we have to be under God, not under men or others in our choices in these regards. Why is drunkenness a sin? Drunkenness is a sin because it injures the health and often leads to other sins, inhibitions. How many people are afraid of what people are going to say or think about them, so they don't? But when they lose this sense of inhibition because they don't care what other people think, they're a little intoxicated, and so they do things they would not ordinarily do, even though they're inclined to because of repressing it, because of other people's opinions. But it does injure the health, um, excessive drinking, uh, sclerosis of the liver, and that's a sad thing. The liver is only one organ we have, and it purifies the blood system, and if that goes out of order, then we are subject to all kinds of blood diseases and uh, excesses. Let us walk becomingly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in debauchery and wantonness, 
not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ as for the flesh, take no thought of its lusts, its excesses. We have sensuality. That's good. We have senses, which means sensuality that we react to the uh, senses, um, uh, organs, to hear, to smell, to think, uh, to, to see. And these are proper things. We see beautiful things. We hear beautiful music. We enjoy beautiful tastes. Um, but excesses are then that which sours, like good wine becomes vinegar. It sours the use of the senses. By drunkenness, one deliberately benumbs without just cause his reason. Precious gift from God to man. By reason, by the light of reason. Dim as it is, it's the best we've got. If we dim it even further, where are we? But darkness compounded. Uh, Sometimes a young person doesn't know the effects of alcohol and for the first time will drink a little too much and become intoxicated, but he didn't intend to. That is not a sin. It's a mistake. But the second time, having experienced the excesses, now he is more aware that he cannot go beyond a certain point. And if he does so now, it's deliberate. It does become a sin. So we have to be warned ahead of time and we try to follow that advice. Don't take drugs. They're addictive. Or not for me. Yes, you are a human being. It happens to others. It will happen to you. So don't take drugs. A person who deliberately does so then commits a sin that exposes him to the danger of being subject to the excesses of further increasing drug uh, uh, taking uh, through the years. It does happen and will happen because we're all of the same human flesh and nature. So we guard ourselves against what we see happening to others if they go into excesses or go into uh, faults that we certainly don't want to go into. But if we deliberately do so, we're guilty. And to the degree we know and choose, then God judges us. We don't judge each other. We warn each other. We help each other. But we want to prevent them from being guilty in the sight of God. And God will judge them accordingly. St. Paul says, The works of the flesh are manifest, which are enmities, drunkenness, carousings, and such like. And concerning these I warn you, as I have warned you, that those who do such things will not attain the kingdom of God. What does that mean? That state that God designed for man to be happy with him forever will be taken away, will be lessened. And that's the consequence then of excesses, the fifth commandment. When committed publicly, drunkenness occasions bad example and scandal. Well, if he can do it, I can do it too. Well, it's fun. Look how funny he is. And I like to be fun, so I'm going to do what he's doing so I can be funny too. Reasons. And has often promoted fights and even murder. Some people get funny when they're drunk. Other people become belligerent. There are two different ways of reacting. But by habitual drinking, a person not only injures his health, but neglects the support of his family and does un and not unlikely also fails his obligation to the state and to God and to his job and so on, his neighborhood. So we see it's out of order. And once you see something out of order, you should bring it back to order. Otherwise, it tends to increase in disorderliness and the justification for that increased disorderliness. Drunkenness is a form of slow suicide. Drunkards do not live long. They shorten the life of God, given them in order to have their uh, to give in to their unworthy appetites. If a man would only sit down and reason the matter out, 
he would never submit to the vice of drunkenness, which does not make him either praised or loved by God or his fellow men. I remember one lady told her husband, look, you let a, bo a bottle of liquor that has no intelligence take your intelligence away? That was a beautiful argument. It doesn't take much reasoning to realize that this can happen. Suicide. What is suicide? Suicide is the deliberate taking of one's own life. Now, who would do such a thing? Somebody who's out of his mind. Maybe because of pain. Maybe because of such an agony of life and its burdens. It robs him of his reason. He does something unreasonable. The church is mindful that some people are out of their head when they do these things. But to deliberately, coldly, rationally choose suicide, euthanasia, I will decide when I'm going to die. When life no longer has any meaning for me, I will take my life and end it all. Who has dominion over life? God. But you become God when you commit suicide, and therefore you will be punished for that abuse. Suicide is a great sin. It is self-murder. The church denies Christian burial to those who knowingly take their own life. By this, the church does not mean that those souls are surely condemned to hell. Their judgment is in the hands of God, as always. We don't judge anybody into hell, but we judge them in danger of going to hell, and that's enough to be concerned about. The church merely wishes to show public condemnation of sins to discourage it for, for others who might be inclined then to, to follow example. One who commits suicide sins against God, who is the exclusive arbiter of life or death. He decides. He sins against himself by plunging his soul mercilessly into hell. One who dies deliberately, consciously committing suicide has not much hope for redemption. And he sins against his family, whom he leaves to bear his shame and perhaps to live in want for lack of his support. We have burdens in life. But we know that it is God's permissive will. If we have faith, we'll accept that burden. And from the burden, others benefit. There's good example given. There's courage shown. There's perseverance. There's an opportunity to help. So many blessings that are side issues that no one can decide what is right and what is wrong. Suicide is the result of lack of religion. Experience teaches that as religion weakens in the land, the number of suicides increases. Increasing number of teenage suicides. Suicide is usually committed by one who has gotten into trouble or committed some great sin or is in despair. And you'll find Judas hung himself, hanged himself, and you'll find that those who are under the influence of the devil end up committing suicide. So we can see it's preceded by an aberration and departure from God into the territory of the devil who take over and destroy. If we get into trouble, we should have patience and trust in God. Make an act of contrition. Some commit suicide because they lose their fortunes, others because of business failures, and still others because they cannot bear disappointments or they feel that they have disappointed others. Suicide is the sin of those in despair, lost hope, who do not believe or hope in God's mercy and ability to carry them through all adversities. Suicide is the sin of Judas. The suicide no longer holds that God forgives anything and everything when a sinner repents. He no longer holds that God is infinitely merciful and infinitely powerful, and he can draw good out of the most horrible evils, and there is, no, there is a loss of faith. 
loss of faith, loss of hope, and the loss of charity, which are sustaining supernatural virtues. We need faith, and we need hope, and we need charity, the life of God. And when that's gone, then destruction comes as a result. If one committed great sins, the remedy is not to commit suicide, but to repent. The thing to do is not to hang or shoot or poison oneself, but to cling to God in sincere sorrow. Even if one has to suffer contempt and disgrace for his li- uh, life, for his, in life for his sins, he will only be re- preparing his soul for heaven. How many criminals are now really holy people in jail, condemned for the rest of their lives to be incarcerated, but they've changed in the course of time by repenting, by thinking things through, and wanting to do a little good that they can in prison as far as they can. Uh, and it's a blessing and grace. But if he commits suicide, he will only be preparing himself for the torments of hell. Uh, we have a duel in ancient uh, older times. Uh, I don't think we have this, but we do have gangs, and they shoot and kill each other. A duel is a combat carried out by agreement between two persons fought with deadly weapons, usually before witnesses called seconds. Dueling is nothing else but suicide and murder combined. A Catholic is bound to refuse to fight a duel. Christian burial is denied to those who are killed in a duel. The duelist is guilty of a double murder. He intends to kill his antagonist, and he risks his own life. The church excommunicates those who challenge or accept a challenge to a duel. The seconds and all who who sanction a duel by their presence are also included. It is not wrong but highly meritorious to endanger... It is not wrong but highly meritorious to endanger our life and health in order to gain everlasting life or to rescue our fellow men from physical or spiritual death. Greater love than this no one has that a man lay down his life for his friends. Christ himself knowingly gave his life to save souls. So there are times when it is permissible, but not directly to take your own life. Never. To endanger a life, to gain everlasting health. Those who work in rescue missions, uh, 911, uh, they sometimes are very heroic and what they do to help others. They endanger their lives, but they do so willingly. Martyrs, priests, missionaries who expose their lives, doctors and nurses who attend contagious cases, merit an eternal reward. You never thought of that, but it's true. Those who lose their lives rescuing others from drowning or burning deserve renown. And the words of scripture, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather be afraid of him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And finally, he who finds his life will love it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. He who finds his life will lose it, I should say. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So the martyrs, those who gave up their lives for God, they did so for a higher cause for the love of God, and God will give them back that life. And those who live their lives for God do not die necessarily, but who live, it's the same thing as dying to self and living to God. And so preserving your life is part of a religious operation. The food you eat, the occasions you avoid, all of this is in the context of the fifth commandment. And we should take it seriously and operate daily, three times a day and all through the day, really, that this temple of God is to be serviced to the mental and to the supernatural life that builds up towards God by preserving the base healthy and integrity in integrity and also the mind sane and healthy and the spiritual life wholesome 
and operating with God's holy grace. So St. Paul then tells us, I exhort you as strangers and pilgrims to abstain from carnal desires which war against the soul and to behave yourselves worthily among the pagans. And um, for such is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Live as free men, yet not using your freedom as a cloak for malice, to be free of false sense, to do sinful things, but as servants of God, to be free to serve God. And this is the real freedom, not the illusion, but the reality that makes us healthy, strong, wise, and capable of doing the works of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen.